Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. I've covered American politics and culture for places like MTV, The New York Times, GQ, and Harper's. My cats are named after Luke and Leia Skywalker. <laughs> and I'm Dan Dresner. I'm a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and the author of a textbook called Theories of International Politics and Zombies. This is a real textbook that he teaches from. We are nerds who nerds think are nerdy. We love talking about political theory and science fiction, and that's what this podcast is about. For now, we're recapping and talking through the history, the economics, and the class politics of The Expanse, Season 5. We will do something else after this. We are looking for suggestions as to what. If you have a suggestion, you can get in touch with us via Instagram or Twitter at the same handle, which is at underscore space the nation you can also go to our patreon page which is patreon.com slash space the nation you can sign up to give us money in exchange for things but it's okay if you don't we know times are hard dan do you know where else times are hard things are tough all over the system on a at least on the expanse <laughs> uh you know whether you look at mars the belt earth uh this is a very very depressing uh, and rather startling episode. And it is called Mother. So I find that unsurprising. But that says more about me than anything else. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dan, would you please lead us off with a recap? Okay. So a lot happens in this episode. Um, let us start with Palace Station, uh, in which Naomi arrives uh, seeking out Philip. Uh, she manages to reunite with her old crew from Palace Station, who also happens to clearly be Philip's crew uh, that we saw back in episode one. She puts out the word that she wants to talk to Philip, and Philip do does show up in the bar. Uh, she tries to talk with him. It does not go well. Um, he She tries to warn him about Marco, her, his father, uh, offers him uh, a ship, the, the freighter that uh, she arrived in. Philip literally says fuck you to her, leaves, and then, however, Naomi goes back to the ship, and, oh, lo and behold, Philip arrives. Just as Naomi thinks that maybe something, you know, more uh, pleasant is about to happen, uh, Philip's crew also arrives. They take the ship, and they also decide to take her, which clearly surprises Philip's crew, but they are basically absconding and, and kidnapping Naomi. Naomi is out of her depth. That is actually perhaps a sub-theme of this episode, I, I, being out of one's depth. Yes, I would agree. Although I will say now, in retrospect, she was right in episode one about Holden not coming. Um, I don't think <laughs> I don't think he would have helped. Uh, I think he would have probably made everything worse. So to be fair, like at the time when Naomi says, I don't want you to come, I wasn't sure why. And now having seen episode three, you know what? I, that was the one thing I think she was right about during this episode. Yeah, he's out of his depth in a different place exactly. in this episode. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, that's what's going on there. Which is actually next next stop. Yes, uh, we go to Tycho Station, in which we discover that Monica thankfully has survived, uh, but informs Fred that uh, his organization leaks like a sieve. Uh, basically, it, you know, lets uh, lets Fred and Holden know that uh, someone, a Belter strike force, has seized a Martian scientist uh, to potentially do protomolecule research, and then the search is on for Monica's kidnappers. Um, they find two dead freight guys, is literally what I wrote down. But Belters. Belters, yes. Uh, but they are obviously dead, which means whoever actually did kidnap Monica is trying to clean up their tracks. Uh, they also set up a trap for a freighter coming in from Ceres to pick up the container uh, that Monica was ostensibly trapped in. And presumably the freighter pilots do not know that Monica is no longer in the container. We do not know whether this plan will work. That will, I take it, uh, happen in episode four. Oh, and I guess I'll I'll introduce the next thing that we're doing, which was going to Luna, a very, very important plot point that is kind of underplayed a little as far as like emotional weight, I feel like. But, you know, yeah, I mean, it's so there's a, there's a lot going on emotionally in this episode, I feel yes. like. And, oh, yes. and we can talk more about that later. No, in some ways, it's I think the balancing act they're doing here is really tough. Yes. All, really, really tough. I, I want to get to this later, but like, also, I loved all the bar scenes in this episode. There is a <laughs> lot of bar scenes, and the contrast with the different bars are really interesting. 
In the case of Luna, Avasarala and her admiral sidekick uh, bring in a, another uh, sort of private sector scientist to try to figure out what all those asteroid fragments that were orbiting around Venus are. They figure out that perhaps what this could be is an asteroid that had broken up, but that was covered in Martian stealth tech that Marco Inaris was throwing at uh, Earth. Um, Avasarala wants to retask all of the watchtowers uh, that are normally focused on Mars to detect stealth tech to start looking for asteroids. Admiral Delgado, uh, who is uh, her sidekick, is resistant to this, but nonetheless uh, tries to go up the chain of command to do this, uh, is shot down and makes it very clear to Avasarala that he has gone as far as he can. Avasarala, meanwhile, uh, tries to uh, reach out a little bit to Arjun and, you know, is now convinced that that Marco Naris is plotting to uh, essentially get um, an asteroid launched onto Earth based on intel that she receives, which we'll talk a little bit later, but in some ways is feeling clearly very hamstrung because, uh, you know, as we'll talk about a little bit later, in some ways, Avasarala now is kind of like Winston Churchill circa 1935, which is to say that, that She's powerful, she's pretty perceptive, but she has made too many mistakes and does not have a great deal of power and so is limited in terms of what she can do. Yeah, it is um, a tough season for Vasarala. Yeah. And I've been trying to read something into her wardrobe. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm no, not this sure. is, see, this is literally oh, something no, I would not I don't know if, I don't know if there's anything there. Like, that's my attempt because I felt like before there was kind of subtle signals <laughs> sent by what she wears, um, but now I'm not so sure. Yes, definitely bookmark drinking. Yeah. Definitely want to talk about the bars and the drinking. We will talk about the drinking. Um, and now uh, to another incredibly <laughs> important plot point that has a weird emotional resonance. I groaned so hard during the entire Mars. Like, <laughs> okay. Nonsense. Like, it's just nonsense. Okay, so we, we clearly need to talk about this, but but essentially uh, uh, in in the Mars scene, Alex is finally going to drink with the Martian lieutenant uh, uh, working for Admiral Sovater. I literally wrote in my notes, Emily Babbage has come to play. Um, <laughs> by, by which I mean, you know, we are no longer seeing Lieutenant Babbage. Rather, her hair is down. She is clearly in Matahari node, you know, Gets Alex. I wrote in my notes, Martian Matahari. There we go. Yeah. Uh, she gets Alex pretty good and drunk, um, in which point Alex spills a lot of the beans about what happens on Illus. Not all of them, though, to be fair. Um, gets a little information from Babbage in return, namely that Babbage is about to head out on a supply run. On his way back to his apartment is jumped by two low-level goons who inject him with something and are about to kill him after interrogating him. Uh, Bobby thankfully opens the door just in the right moment, and Bobby comes in and Bobby does Bobby things. Uh, You know, punching the two goons, dispatching them with relative ease by Bobby standards, um, has them arrested by the Martian police, but does not... Does not kill them. Actually, I want to point out does not kill them, because I think this is important. Yes. Um, does because if they get off in some way, they can carry the intel back. This is like true. Yes, I feel like she should have offed them. Well, like, so, I feel like she should have offed them. Right. Like I know that's like morally questionable, but the other thing that I was puzzled by with this scene in terms of the way it was edited, which is so it and you know she dispatches goon one, and then in goon two she injects the thing that the goon was trying to inject into her, which I'm assuming was some form of truth serum. And then it cuts to the Martian authorities being there. So the thing I kept wondering was, did why didn't Bobby and Alex interrogate the goon to find out what the heck was going on? Yeah, I think there are places here throughout the episode where we see people out of their depth, yes, like just doing stuff that they're not good at. You know, like <laughs> Alex is an amazing pilot. He's so good at being a pilot. But he he is, is not good at being a spy. Bad you know? at spy like, stuff. Yes, <laughs> not not good at spy stuff. No, and, and just not thinking things through. You know, Holden also not good at this stuff about security and like mysteries. And you know, he's like just a good guy. Like that's what he needs to be doing is being a good guy. You know, and I think Drummer is also weirdly shows some like lack of drummer like, so good decision making maybe drummer is a little di- so i we'll get to drummer because that's that's actually a good okay. segue to talk about drummer um yeah. so we get to drummer you know uh, who they find ashford's ship the tynan um she also finds ashford's last message which ashford had recorded uh, his conversation with marco anaris which makes it pretty clear what marco anaris's plan is which is to launch uh stealth tech covered asteroids at earth 
drummer, after reviving the Tynan and essentially resalvaging it, uh, wants to go after Marco and collect the bounty that the OPA has put on him. Um, it is safe to say her crew is not keen on this, um, but she seems to be talked out of it by uh, Oksana, who... Uh, and we finally get space polyamory, yes. but um, I will say... As with much of this series, what I appreciate is the frankness and matter-of-factness with which they treat all different kinds of sexual orientations, you know, and activity, and also the fact that it's just another thing. Yeah. You know, we both watched some of the after-show interviews, and the series creators on Twitter especially actually have complained about people creating romantic tension where there is none. Mm. You know, like, they don't, they want to make very clear, like, there are completely pure platonic relationships oh, right. yes, and those yes. are great yes and there are partnerships yeah. and those are great and like none of them are more important than one another i i, I don't know like i find that refreshing no that's true and i think like for yeah and yes like i think specifically the response was to somehow people thinking that alex and bobby were going to do something when in fact alex is very clear when he's interested in someone and not interested in someone and he's clearly not <laughs> not you know he likes alex or likes bobby but not in that way um, and it certainly god knows it's reciprocal so not a uh, not a problem anyway drummer's last uh, act uh, is to send uh, ashford's message on um to fred johnson who is then passes it on to avasarala um but the point being and and closes with her saying this is no longer my fighter this is not my fight and then, unfortunately, the episode ends with what I can only describe as the Big Bang or uh, the Expanse's effort to make deep impact because uh, the asteroid hits and clearly we are about to see bad things happening. The way I would put it is, is that I am not normally a binge watcher of shows. I'm not like I, I normally ration out. I like I'll watch like an episode or two a night and then I'll keep going. Uh, it required a tremendous amount of willpower not to click on episode four immediately after the end of this episode. I had the same response. And even having read the books, I am really interested in how they play this out. And I'll say here what I couldn't say before, because it would have been a spoiler. When I was reading the books, Mm -hmm. the entire time I was like, there's no way they're actually going to destroy Earth. I mean, come on. Like, Earth is like the good guy. Or like, Earth is this incredibly, like, it's us, you know? Most science fiction movies plots comic books whatever you're always saving earth Mm -hmm. right like that's the usual arc of any time earth is in peril to actually kill earth off like a beloved character (laughs) dare i say i guess the question is is this episode and i guess the next one the red wedding episode as it were of the expanse (laughs) um that's actually a good comparison because yeah. it's it's like them doing something that's conceivable but and yet startling. Yes, right. Um, and of course, the, the to, it's worth noting, by the way, that that the main character who does not appear in this episode, who I am very worried about now, is Amos, because um, we knew Amos was going to be visiting someone, and and uh, I'm kind of curious where Amos is and what happened. Yeah, I, literally, I'm, I. Oh, this is very. This is a very fun plot. Okay. Like I, I will, I will give a teaser with that. Like it's a really cool adventure Ooh. slash emotional journey again. Okay, for Amos. I look forward to that. But we should so, focus back on this episode. Yes, we should. And in the past, we have we have we have deconstructed episodes by going through our favorite quotes. We're going to do a little different this time. We're not going to separate quotes and scenes. We're kind of using the quotes to get into scenes. I don't know why I'm explaining this on our third episode. It's not like people are really used to a certain kind of structure. But I thought I would explain. So we are now going to enter into a section that I have now decided to call Pivotal Scenes. (laughs) Our first quote, it literally is how the episode opens, which is in the uh, bar in Luna in which Avasarala and uh, Admiral Delgado uh, talk to Dr. Alawi, who is a private sector scientist. If he takes my call at all, and if the SG gets wind of it... I have burned all the bridges in front of me and behind me. And I don't give a fuck. That's a lovely antique. Yeah, I like mechanisms. So I've heard. This is your quote, but I just want to say, I kept in the so I've heard because it was so weird. <laughs> like... There's some stuff that's mystifying to me about Admiral Delgado. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't quite get him. Mm-hmm. It's a good enough actor that I don't question what's happening with him, right. but he seems to kind of be a little all over the place and so what the fuck there are two things anyway. there are two things about this scene I mean, really this this is not necessarily emblematic of anything larger there were two things i thought about the scene first was i want to know the end of that goddamn joke um yes i had the same thing i was going to ask you if is that like is that like a military theory joke that like not to my knowledge I, I, you know i admit i'm not a uh, <laughs> you know i'm not that I, i've military strategy joke war college joke i don't know yeah i mean it wouldn't <laughs> shock me but like I, I if it is i don't know it and, and the other thing like literally the the I like mechanisms line. I, the it's not necessarily emblematic of anything else in the entire episode. It was just I, again props to the Expanse writers because this is a character that we see for one scene. Um, he has maybe two or three minutes of, of screen time, if that, and is mostly sort of doing sort of you know tech exposition or laying pipe, as it were. Um, and yet I, that was just like a, a two second thing that just sort of added a slight kind of depth to the character that otherwise wouldn't necessarily have existed. And it was, I, I just, again, it's a lovely grace note, which uh, I really liked. Yeah. It also shows a little bit of how the expanse brings our reference points into the future mm-hmm. and recontextualizes them. Yes. And does so in a way that can't, I'm oh, sorry. And does so in a way that doesn't make you, it doesn't discomfort you. It actually, it properly sets you. It sort of, you know, grounds you in, in the right way. This is not the homecoming I was expecting. Well, you're not a homebody. Hmm? You need to wake the fuck up. You have got a serious problem on your hands. Someone is after the protomolecule and you know where it is. So that last one from, from Monica, as a journalist, I want to protest her treatment. <laughs> <laughs> they saved her life. What are you so upset about? They literally slam the door on her as she is pointing out her importance to this whole venture. Mm-hmm. You know, like, clearly, you know, respect for the press has not increased in the <laughs> 400 years or so that has <laughs> Fair followed I, so here's my question. fake press, like, blame and shame. Yeah, well, I guess the, the way I would put it is, would Monica have actually shared that information without, like, already getting a quid pro quo or something from, you know, like, wouldn't a reporter said, I'll, I'll give this to you, but I need to know something in return? If I thought the fate of humanity there you go. was at stake, maybe I'm a bad journalist, but if I but thought... But you're a good person, Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. I mean, you you picked up on, on these as plot points. I'll, I'll go ahead and just say what I think, which is that, of course, there's the Alex one, which is funny, mm-hmm. but also uh, it's the out of their depth. Out of context, yeah. Out of context stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should say, you know what? That's better because that's the Amos line right, from exactly. the yeah. first episode. He's like, I'm in a different context. Everyone's in a different context so far in this series. And I, I think that's going to remain hmm. Unless they start picking up other books, but as long as the Rossi crew is spread to the winds, I think everyone's out of context. Yeah, that's a safe statement. So the Alex thing, Alex is out of context. Also, um, that lack of context or that lack of experience in this particular kind of work, you know, is is important here. Yes, like the fate of of what's going to happen next, obviously. Mm-hmm. So and and the other thing I think is that the 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 wake the fuck up quote is. Again, doubling down, and they're they're not they're they're not uh, being subtle and signaling this, which is that there is clearly trouble in in Tycho, and that uh, there's big trouble in Little Tycho, as it were, and and Fred needs to get a grip on what the hell is going on there. Indeed. All right, and now from the cringiest scene <laughs> ever filmed for the Expanse in all of the seasons and all of the episodes they have had thus far. This is from the exchange between Alex and Martian Matahari. Hey, if it wasn't for Miller, we'd all be dead on that rock. But lucky for everyone, we destroyed that last piece of protomolar crap. So now all those machines on all those other planets, they're going to remain inert. The most amazing thing about that story might just be your modesty. All right. So, so I have a question for you, which is, why did you find that scene so discomforting? (laughs) Well, I'm 
I am perhaps overly sensitive to people embarrassing themselves. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I hate to watch stuff where people made, make fools of themselves, and Alex is making a fool of himself. And and it's just such ham-fisted fake seduction. Like, right, that was you know, what I thought. Again, you, that was the thing I thought you found was just, like, you know, is it... Because Babbage is just yeah. lathering it on. You know. And he should... Well, I mean, he's being a man, I guess. Like, I'm always <laughs> kind of surprised when men fall for shit like that. Like, <laughs> oh, Anna, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I know I shouldn't be. Yeah. I, I've been on this earth for 47 years and never seen anyone, <laughs> never seen a man not fall for it. <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> Again, we have, have our strengths, but changed. on this, we are very simple things, creatures. <laughs> Things that have not changed. I, w- I, I will say this, which is, to be fair to Alex, again, he does all of this really badly. But at the very end, you remember, like, at the, in the scene with after the, the cops have left, Bobby asks him what he's learned. And he, he does say, well, I've learned Babbage isn't really into me. Um, I had He redeems himself just a yeah, little bit yeah. in that. Um, but yes, I, you know, d- when his report reports right, back but I will put, and, and yeah. it sounds like he's a little more savvy than he seemed at the moment. But Yes, but I agree with you that that even going in, what was astonishing to me was just how bad he was at trying to gather information. I'm like, no, you don't spill your guts and then after you've gotten loaded. Yeah, I know. That was the part that I laughed at that too. It's like he tells the entire story of Illis and then it's like, so, so how about your boss? With the two minutes that we're about to leave, <laughs> let's talk about Sovater. You know, like, and, and I actually, this was a, this was the one subtle thing about Babbage that I like, which was when she sort of, you know, acted like hurt and jealous. He's like, oh, you seem more interested in, in my boss than me, you know, like, and which I actually thought was clever. And and this is probably the least political analysis we've done of an episode so far. Like this episode seems to have like the least IR, yeah. perhaps sort of balancing out um, the really heavy handed <laughs> <laughs> actual war college lecture from the last episode. I did want to ask you, as someone who's spoken at war colleges, do they teach that stuff at war college? Like the whole like... Matahari stuff like is that no i think it is safe class to, no yeah. <laughs> there is no introduction to matahari or resisting matahari that is not and in some ways this goes back to the 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 odd aspect of of the last episode where um Sovater is lecturing about the, the futility of planning because planning and strategy is what they lecture about at war colleges um you know at war colleges you're dealing with you know, higher level officers, you know, uh, majors, you know, captains and so forth, you know, depending on the uh, uh, Commodores, what, you know, you name it. And it's all about like sort of larger strategic thinking. Um, and no, it's not about uh, how to resist uh, a comely lieutenant. <laughs> Maybe they, te- they teach that in like SEAL training. Yeah, exactly. That I would assume <laughs> they do there. But um, no, it's safe to say this is not. But, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to allow you to introduce the the drummer stuff yes. because I know how dear she is to you. Yes, as my favorite character on the the show, Kamina Drummer is going through some stuff in this episode, and uh, in the scenes we're about to see, essentially, it was actually I, this was actually the most to the extent that there was a payoff in this episode. This was it for me in the sense of I actually thought. Drummer is the only character that actually finds even a modicum of peace um, in, in terms of what happens in this episode. If I wanted company, I'd have stayed in bed. We never realize how much someone is a part of us until we feel the weight of emptiness when they're gone. You haven't had a family in a long time. You don't have to hide your grief from me or from anyone. Not anymore. So I, I, I really love that scene for a variety of reasons, one of which is it's actually we have only for both political science and for character reasons. For character reasons is that we see Drummer actually letting down her guard, which is not something she does. She's, she's barely done at all throughout the entire arc of the show. And so and in some ways it's interesting because really we knew Drummer's we knew that Drummer was OPA. Um, and and had been a, a pirate, but like we've only seen her in institutional roles, and like now we're finally sort of seeing her a little bit more personally. But the other, the poli sci reason I like this is that in some ways, this is the distinction between what we would call, you know, 
drummer as a Viberian bureaucratic actor versus a more clannish actor. So think about it. The reason the drummer, we've primarily seen drummer as buttoned down and like as a hard ass from, you know, the first three seasons of this show is that we only see her in an institutional capacity of, you know, literally state building. Now that she is the head of her own, you know, faction, factional politics are much more, you know, sort of family and clan based. Um, And so I actually liked Oksana's point of you actually lead better by letting your guard down as opposed to trying to, you know, put up a a front of some kind. And so it's funny, we in political science normally thinks of sort of the Viberian bureaucratic state as a superior form of organization to kind of clan forms. And, And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that. But the interesting thing about this episode, it's just that maybe for drummer right now, being part of a faction is a little bit better for her mental headspace because she has clearly been ra- and that's the other thing that I found in this entire episode was that she's been she's just clearly racked with guilt because she, in some ways she betrayed Ashford twice right first she votes to in, in season four she? first she vote like okay. you can see it if you look in this larger perspective of what she like wh- mm-hmm. how important is her relationship to Ashford that that's what she's now being asked right yeah like. Do you choose us or do you choose this relationship that was once important to you, mm-hmm. but that you made a rational decision about? Like, I guess I'm just rejecting betrayed because I think even Ashford yes. understood right. what no, sorry, Drummer that, was doing. Yeah, no, I agree. Let's put it this way. Betrayed is the wrong word. And I apologize for that. It, it would be more to no, say yeah, that. I mean, it's just it's 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 a complicated, but I think it's just, yeah. it's more complicated than betrayed. No, no, that's that's correct. But the point is, Trump, Drummer makes two decisions that conflict with what Ashford wanted. First, she agreed to let Marco free when they had captured him, and and Ashford said he's dangerous. And then second, you know, rejects Ashford's offer to be uh, his XO in hiding hunting for Marco. Um, and it is clear that that in Drummer's mind. She is responsible for Ashford's death, whether that is accurate or not. And I think Oksana really does a lovely job here of sort of pointing out the ways in which that's not necessarily the case. The one thing I would say, and I'm curious about your thoughts about this, is that the sort of final scene we see Drummer where she somewhat, you know, she says, this is not my fight. She takes the bottle out that she had given to Ashford that they would drink to celebrate Marco's death. Opens it up and I think, okay, she's moving on. But then she closes it again and does not drink. So I do not think she has quite moved on yet. I think that she retains complicated ties to the OPA as a nation state building project. Right. um, Versus the Klan politics. Yes. um, That she's involved in now. And I actually hadn't realized this till you were unpacking it in the Verbarian versus Clan uh, <laughs> structure, which is I kept seeing a theme in this episode of class mm-hmm. over material, like class politics and family politics being stronger than money. Oh, OK. Which actually that, leads us to, I believe, the next quote. That is correct. And, and I'll just to you know, be really obvious here. Drummer is making a choice to forego the insane amount of bounty on Marco's head and instead be a part of the family, mm-hmm. like to strengthen those ties rather than to simply like get rich. Yes. And I have a couple of quotes that also illustrate that. Um, one of them is a little long, but there's a lot there. I mean, no disrespect. I know it's hard times around here. <laughs> Fuck it, you know about hard times. I worked in the refinery a long time ago. So yeah, we used to work in refinery too. Not long ago. Oh, fucking ring. Oh, the job go right back down the weller for the ingots. <laughs> Let me buy a boat around. <laughs> that all you think we worth, okay? How about you buy Ness on Jade Rounds? And then the next one is a much more succinct expression of the same idea. The ship that I came in on, I bought it. For you, I'm giving it to you. Take it and go wherever you want. And when you get there, I will send you all the money that you need. But please, just take it. Fuck you. <sighs> that, yeah. So, 
so actually, what I again, what I really liked about this episode in terms of the Naomi scenes was in some ways that first scene in which it's just two belters sort of, you know, uh, trying to to cadger in some ways was the harbinger of this is not going to go well because it, it shows Naomi had your Naomi had no idea how to deal with these two. Um, she's clearly, you're right. She's, she's somewhat at a much better place than she was when she was originally at Palace Station. They are guilting the hell out of her and her response is basically just to appease them. And, you know, if not for the arrival of, of one of, uh, her old friends whose name I believe is Sin. Um, yes, yes, which is a good name. Nicely done. Uh, you know, she would have been in further trouble and it demonstrated the depth, the degree to which she was out of her depth. Out of context, out of depth. And again, like, I mean, I am very interested in how this show treats class and and treats um, material, you know, materialism, like it's Marxism to the degree that it is obvious. Sometimes it is, sometimes Mm -hmm. it isn't. And I just felt like the choices being made here were really interesting to, like, say that there are some drives that are stronger than the profit motive. Right. Absolutely. Although, again, this is... (laughs) The one thing I will say about the scene between Naomi and Philip, the first scene in the bar, was I was. It, it does show the extent to which Naomi was out of her depth because I, I even as someone, maybe this is the effect of being married to a, a therapist and a social worker, but I was like, this is not what you say to your estranged son to convince your estranged son to walk away from his father. All I kept thinking was, there are so many better things you could have said at that moment. <laughs> I had the same kind of response, by the way, like, um, and not to get too personal, but I alluded to it, like, you know, I had a complicated relationship with my mother. Mm -hmm. um, uh, And actually, because I want to talk about recovery when we talk about bars. Oh, there we go. Um, You know, uh, my mom was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, For a long time, we were both alcoholics at the same time. Um, It was easy for me to relate to this scene. Hmm. It was easy for me to kind of put myself in the place of someone who had to think about what I would be doing if suddenly, like, things were either okay. If suddenly she wanted things to be okay. Right. No, I I guess the way I would put it, I wasn't expecting to sympathize with Philip at the end of that scene. And that's what I did. That's the way I would put it. And I think that's they did that well. And I think it shows, um, you know, Naomi, for all her incredible strengths... Um, she, she did miss a part of like somehow like the emotional maturity that comes with being a mother maybe. And it also made me question, and maybe this is the thing that I I bring to this, but like when she says, I love you and I've always loved you or something like Mm -hmm. that, part of me was like, really? (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, I know the bond between mother and child is incredibly strong, and there's there's something that's actually like chemical about it, mm-hmm. right? Love is an action, right? She has given Philip no evidence that she loves yeah. him, and furthermore, does then goes on to say, by the way, the person who has raised you, and you know, is a charismatic person and loves you is not who you think he is, which is accurate. But nonetheless, like you don't lead with that. It's not, go- you know, that that is something you can only get to after, you know, quite some time. So, yeah, I, as I said, it, it was a well executed. If the point was to make you feel sympathy for Philip, then mission accomplished, because, you know, let's face it, we shouldn't be feeling all that much sympathy for the Inaris faction, given what they're about to do. Um, but, yeah, it was striking to me. The degree to which uh, Naomi, despite the fact that she had been in Palace Station before, was clearly way out of context here. Yeah. All right. So another person who's operating in um, a space she's not used to. Yes. So, you know, Avasarala is uh, just trying to figure out how to stay in the scene. You know, she she clearly thinks there is a serious threat. She thinks that that uh, Nancy Gao and the UN have to be alerted to this, um, but she is no longer the formidable political force that she once was, and she at least recognizes that now. Except she does give a fuck. Um, she's clearly frustrated. Uh, she is, 
been reduced in terms of her power and stature. Her own, you know, she literally tells Delgado later in the episode that he is her only ally. Um, so she's simultaneously finding out pertinent information and yet is being shut out. And again, uh, to 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 revive, I, I get. I, I was struck by historically the analogy is to Churchill because. Churchill in the mid 1930s, um, before you know, before before becoming prime minister again, is someone who has a long record and also a fairly long record of fuck ups too. Um, had made a number of disastrous policy decisions or policy pronouncements when he had previously held authority, and was unliked and, by a lot of people. Exactly, and was was and was a polarizing figure. Um, it, it took who was also right yes who it turns out was <laughs> right about the most important thing in his lifetime um and so that in some ways again it, it does rem- and also was clearly charismatic and loquacious and all of those things so like i would leave this way in my fantasy you know if there was a holodeck on uh on and the expanse i want to see officer and churchill you know at a drinking session <laughs> oh god that's such a smooth segue to drinking <laughs> Right. So I'll let you go with the the upside of of drinking and you wanted to talk about the bars. Well, it was just and it, it struck me that like this ca- this had to have been intentional. There are three major sequences that happen in bars. I mean, admittedly the expanse is not shy about drinking. There's there's oftentimes some drinking, but it was striking to me how um the the degree to which uh you see you know, it it opens with the bar in Luna in which there are I think having whiskey, um, it then cuts to Palace State. Oh, and a martini, which he at first shakes too violently. I think for her, like he goes, he shakes <laughs> right. it more. And then it cuts to Palace Station, where they're just drinking vodka. And then, and this was my favorite. I have to admit, was the Martian bar with the cringe Matahari scene. But the thing I loved was, you know, we'll have the private reserve wine, which I, I have to admit, I was not expecting Martian Mars to be like. To have a wine bar as well as like the old, uh, you know, the the cowboy bar we'd seen previously. But it, it, in some ways, I think it what it actually connects to is the class um, overtones that you were talking about. Because the Luna bar is relatively upscale. They're alone because they're they're just trying to interrogate. The, the Palace Station bar is a dive bar. And the Mars one is like, you know, sort of a fancy restaurant. Type. It, it would be a place where you would take a war college person out. Uh, it was, it was a very date, yes. like type bar exactly. too. And I, I don't, so. So I'm curious about I, your perspective I, on this as a. Recovering alcoholic. Yes. yes. I want to put out there that, um, drinking is awesome for people that can do it. <laughs> I have like no, like if you are someone that can drink and then stop, then you should by me all means have fun. Mm. That is great. Um, but as someone who's always a little aware of drinking as a plot device um it's very obvious in this episode number one and number two it made me think of something that i often ponder when i'm watching science fiction taking place in the far future which is what do people in recovery do that is a good that's an excellent question i hadn't thought about that because you know, is there AA in space? You would think there would have to be, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know that there's no. You're right. That would be interesting. To, I, I, I'm trying to think in science fiction if there has ever been a recovering substance abuser. I mean, there isn't fantasy. I can't think of one. There's often there's often people with drug or alcohol problems, right. but they tend not to get sober, um, and it's portrayed in. <sighs> Like, I'm not going to say, like, ungenerous, but it's usually, like, a character defect. Like, it's presented as, like, a weakness of Right, it's someone. a sign that the character is going to turn on someone or, yeah. It, it, or is bad yeah. or weak or, yeah. you know, somehow damaged in some way and not a disease. Um, so one thought I had mm-hmm. is that it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> they've cured addiction. They've cured the gene? Which, yes. they've cured the gene because yeah. there is a lot of evidence that it is a genetic disposition mm-hmm. and that... Um, if they have amazing gene therapy in the future and they have a lot of different kinds of cool things, like they've cured cancer, you know, or they've figured out how to, you know, not have cancer 
be deadly. Right. I don't know. I, I phrased that very badly, <laughs> but they figured out how to stop cancer. Right. If they right? can cure, if they can cure diseases that we think of that have, have traditionally been accepted as diseases, surely perhaps they have attacked diseases that are, you know, are now being appreciated as actual diseases. But I, I, I really would love it if the expanse would tackle addiction in space. Like I just think that would be really interesting, um, because you know A has been around for like. 70 something years and mostly remain unchanged like that's something that is a key part of the program Mm -hmm. is that it doesn't change very much there's a a strong resistance to changing anything in what's called the basic text so the basic text is all him he man husband (laughs) yeah and like i go to a women's meeting where we just read it different like just wherever it says we man, woman, we say right, woman. Yeah. Like wherever it says him for God, we usually just replace it with God mm-hmm. rather than he, him, whatever. So anyway, um, I'm just, I'm just a intri- shout out expanse writers. If you wanted to do something interesting, would be cool to address I have that. to say, I'm intrigued by the notion that the AA liturgy is, is more rigid than like actual religious liturgy. Cause like in the time that I've grown up, you know, as a conservative Jew, like the, the, the prayers that we say now have become much more gender neutral than when I was a kid. Um, so like if, if the, you know, all I'm saying is, is that if like a 5,000 year old religion can change, then, you know, maybe the AA liturgy can as well. This year for obvious reasons, <laughs> it has become a much bigger discussion mm-hmm. to bring AA into this century. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of talk about the whiteness of AA oh. and, um, the classness of AA, and it would just be really cool, you know, to see how these thinkers who have been so imaginative and expansive, as it were, in in projecting out what human culture looks like and how it changes and doesn't change. Mm-hmm. I just love to see that. And speaking of not changing, yes. on the back of the door. In Alex's <laughs> hotel room, there is a framed piece of paper showing the exit routes. <laughs> I, I, that's the best they can do. Four hundred years from now, is the exact same thing. Okay, you know what? That's also ignored. I'm gonna so so. Like, no, I will defend this. All right, here here's where I will go. <laughs> you see books in the expanse, like actual physical books. Okay. The book is an awesome piece of technology, you know, that is very, very old. All I, I'm not saying ho- – I'm therefore not equating them with, with hotel maps. But all I would say <laughs> is that if there was an actual crisis, you know, maybe having a thing literally right at the door is the one way that, like, that's stupid true. people it's can – That's true. something that's not electronic that won't exactly. go down. You know, and also everyone is okay. panicked and so forth. So that's all. I, all I'm saying is I'm not saying that they're, like, the greatest things ever, but there's a logic to keeping them there. Okay. Next piece of technology that survived 400 years, and I dare you to defend, as you know, this is a pet peeve of mine throughout this series, but now I finally get a chance to talk about it. QWERTY keyboards. (laughs) Seriously? Like, they have these amazing, like, handhelds, and I'm actually, like, the handhelds thing, I am, I can see how that format for personal technology is the way to go. Mm -hmm. Still, like when it's been imagined that people have like, you know, wrist stuff or whatever, like I I do think that that humans to have a thing that you hold in your hands to communicate is a natural thing. Also, the key thing is is that if you hold it in your hand, you can also put it away, which you can't really do with your wrist then. Right. Um, However, like there's a scene, I think it's in the first episode where someone like is shown dramatically typing (laughs) on their handheld as a journalist who types a lot, sometimes dramatically. <laughs> I'm going to want to see a gif of you I know typing that that dramatically, is, but keep going. It is impossible. Well, it's impossible to convey the drama of dramatic typing. Dramatic typing looks like regular typing unless there's suspenseful music behind it. I don't play suspenseful music when I'm doing my dramatic <laughs> typing. So it would look like any other typing. Okay, Dan, explain to me. Like you said, there's actually a concept related to there this. There is a social science technology. concept. So, so first of all, your objection to QWERTY is that it's an inefficient keyboard, I'm assuming? Okay, yes. Fair enough. Yes. So it will behoove you to know that, in fact, QWERTY was designed to be an inefficient keyboard. This is the fun thing about it. So 
when Cordy was originally designed, um, and in, this is uh, one of the most well-known articles in economic history, um, which is written by an economist named Paul David about QWERTY and a concept called path dependence. So essentially, the QWERTY keyboard, when it was designed, was for typewriters. Now, if you recall, you are old enough, and I am old enough to remember, that back in the days of before computers, when you were typing something, you didn't want to make a mistake. Because if you made a mistake with an old typewriter, you would either have to start over completely or get something called whiteout or some other substance to... Correction cor- tape, which was even like more annoying. Right, exactly. So the point was, there was a danger in going too fast. You actually wanted to be able to go in such a way that you didn't make mistakes because that was... If you typed fast but kept making mistakes, that was far more costly. So the original keyboard... There were other keyboards when the typewriter was originally developed that were far more efficient. But QWERTY, it was thought, would slow typists down to the point where the mistake rate would be less. And so QWERTY winds up becoming the standard keyboard. And this is where the concept of path dependence kicks in. Path dependence is a concept that economists talk about and political scientists and social scientists, which basically says, if you do something at time t, at time t plus 1, it becomes harder to change. At time t plus 2, it becomes even harder to change, and so forth. And part of this in terms of the QWERTY keyboard is that in order to be trained into typing, everyone has to learn the same keyboard. You know, that way I can type on one computer and then move to another computer or move to another typewriter or so on and so forth. We don't need to, to relearn it. To ask people to change QWERTY, there are massive switching costs to that because you are basically telling people who have typed, literally touch type for, you know, decades and now like don't even think about it. They just have muscle memory. If you change the keys on them now, that will be massively disorienting to them. And so you would have trigger tremendous opposition. And so there are ways in which what path dependence says is that history matters, that if you start off on an inefficient path for whatever reason, you are often stuck with that path, even if you know, even if everyone recognizes that it would be better to switch to a different path. And you know what? That is a theme of the experience. There you go. <laughs> Do you like how we? You didn't, no one, no, no one listening ways, thought we were going to stick this yep. landing, and we stuck it, baby. <laughs> we stuck this landing because path dependence is definitely a thing yes. in the expanse, like a, an original decision that's made, and then no matter what happens that shows that original decision to be a t- disastrous one, you're stuck on that yes. path, and you have to play exactly. it out. Which I want to end on the most important thing in the episode. It's what the episode ends with. Ugh. The Big Bang. We talked a little about it. I, I guess I just wanted to do some final thoughts about it, which is final thoughts about the Earth, because the Earth is going to be final. So I guess this is where you've read the books, and, and I can tell in the books what happens. I guess the they've changed some things in the show. For example, I know for a fact that apparently in the books, it's Marco that kidnaps uh, Naomi um, in this, whereas they decide to make it Philip, which I actually, I like that choice. I guess my question is, is, is this a deep impact? You know, in other words, is this a, is this earth being, is this an extinction level event or is it a not quite extinction level event? That is the part that I don't, I'm going to want to know. And literally I might very well watch this episode the moment we stop recording this because that is what is haunting me. Should we restart? Cause I did sort of hint that it's final days the earth let's do a little bit of okay yeah, yeah. There. okay and we can kind of start to do you know what i'll i'll let's pick it up with what i have as the outro yeah i'm there okay so i think we've covered all the major themes and some themes that aren't so major but we've figured out how to make them major yes. uh final thoughts dan i might as a non-reader of this series especially maybe you can speak to curiosities expectations so as a non-reader of the the books as i said i i very much want to watch the next episode almost immediately it's clear earth is in trouble what i don't know is just how much trouble is it in in other words is this something that will literally is is marco's plot something that will intentionally or unintentionally lead to a truly extinction level event or is it just a really really is it just like a deep impact kind of thing? <laughs> is it just really really exactly. bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a quasi-extinction. Uh, a fine distinction yeah. to make. Um, yeah. I mean, they could do something different. Um, right. I guess. I don't think it's spoiling anything to play out this particular thought slash question, mm. which is 
what happens when Earth is not home. Yes. So let's put it this way. If (laughs) this is something we will obviously be talking about, I'm sure, in future episodes, but the effect on the distribution of power if Earth is no longer Earth um, is going to be... it, it's going to be interesting. And also, I guess the question is... And I would love to know, start thinking of historical parallels because... I will I will I, work I, on it for next week. Yes, for the next episode. None of them occur to me. Uh, I will also point out again, not a spoiler, spoiler, refugee problem. Yes. Also, I'm assuming like Luna suddenly, I assume, becomes much more important. There's a lot of different ways I can, I can play this out. Um, none of them are good. Uh, you know, so the expanse <laughs> is going to have a lot of plot heavy content, I'm assuming, um, going, going forward. And, and that I'll speak to a little bit as a reader of the series, just looking at how they're going to handle stuff. We now have two big bads, uh, Marco mm-hmm. slash asteroid stuff, yeah. right? Um, Osama bin Laden magnified to... A truly successful Osama bin Laden. Yes, yes. And then the proto-molecule, which has been MacGuffin slash Big Bad up till now. Right. So I will say this. That, I mean, I, There was a part of me that wondered, is is the Marco faction involved in the proto-molecule stuff as well? Although the way that Babbage was asking questions uh, leads me to think that uh, there might be something else going on there. The, the problem, I think, right now is that as an Earther, I find the first plot and first big bad to be far more approximate than the protomolecule. I know the protomolecule is bad. I'm not saying that I don't understand the threat posed by the protomolecule. But frankly, who gives a fuck? The Earth is about to be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the problem that I foresee them having to navigate. Yeah. And they've navigated a lot of stuff successfully. But I'm curious about how they do it which is the emotional resonance of the earth being destroyed for a bunch of earthlings watching. <laughs> this is going to be an intense is, thing. It's going to be an intense. It's intense. Yeah. And it was, in, it was intense in the yeah. book. Like, I, I mean, I, I told you I was surprised they went ahead with it. Um, I was impressed with the level of detail that they thought about in terms of the logistics of something that's even just a near extinction, extinction mm-hmm. event. So that I'm curious about. Um, I've already given hints about how much I'm looking forward to the Naomi uh, plot being fleshed out and visualized. And the Amos plot. It's I want to know where exciting. the hell Amos is. Cause like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Th- there's a lot of really good stuff. And they've also started to pull from the, the novellas. Mm-hmm. And I read the novellas when I was really sick <laughs> a year ago or so ago. So there, I kind of have fever dream memories of them. I should probably reread them. Uh, uh, I know that the protomolecule plot, there's a, with that scientist that they identify yeah. in the footage that Monica mm-hmm. has, that's that's a novella okay. plot. So we will see how they all interact. All right. I think we, we have covered everything. And again, I think we've got it under an hour, yes. which I hope we have not tried anyone's patience. And we have given you some insight on both, you know, big deal emotional themes and some of the you know real world applicable political science bullshit <laughs> i haven't cursed enough on this episode so i had to get that in so goodbye a belated happy life day to those wookies who celebrate it um you can find us on twitter or instagram or patreon which thanks to anna i now know how to pronounce until next time